mean, bottom line, man, I'm a real guy and I like real stuff. I mean, I like reading and, and thinking critically. I like deep human connections, you know, in the pursuit and expression of truth. I like empirical observation and Orthodox Christian theology. I like capitalism, man, and small government. I like ambition and working hard to achieve identified goals. Uh, I, I like Kentucky straight bourbon and my wife naked. I mean, I like real stuff. The problem that I often have with biblical counseling theory is that it's not real stuff. It's just a, a bunch of fluff that, that masquerades as something of biblical substance. It's a paper plate counseling theory. You know, that's, that's explained with, with words like, like as precise as a shotgun at 300 yards. You know, but when you, you get into the substance, you know, the, the nuts and bolts, the, the real-time details of biblical counseling theory, when you push beyond the inflated and, and like all-encompassing language, it's suddenly like, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. You know, move along. There's, there's nothing to see here. You know, for instance, one of the foundational suppositions of biblical counseling theory is that sins cause sickness. But words like sins and sickness, they carry like virtually limitless meanings. I mean, they literally, if you think about it, include more conceptual possibilities than they don't. That sins somehow cause sickness. I mean, especially in an age of empiricism and outcome data, medical and technologic advances. It's language that seems for sure like less precise than it would have even 50 years ago when Jay Adams was publishing his competent to counsel. You know, but one size fits all, uh, you know, words like sins and sickness are amalgamated into a, an ultimately formless theory that sounds indeed Christ and, and Bible honoring enough uh, to appeal to a morally and theologically conservative audience, but they're general enough too to fly below the radar of of actual observability and and testability. It's not unlike when advertisements present a company's capacity to to save customers up to seventy five percent or more. You know their commitment to you is exactly nothing. I mean because they haven't said anything, only that you might save something. the The language of the advertisement shirks the the burden of proof because it necessarily includes all possible scenarios. I mean, even that customers might not save anything at all or that they might spend more money on their product. Now, I'm, I'm not meaning to equate individuals in the biblical counseling movement with like shrewd and dishonest business people, but I am meaning to point out, unwittingly or not, that the specific language they use to explain biblical counseling theory is so unspecific as to communicate exactly nothing. David Pallison, uh, in Introduction to Biblical Counseling, a basic guide uh, to the principles and practice of counseling, edited by MacArthur and Mack, uh, 1994, writes that sin in all its dimensions is the primary problem counselors must deal with. Sin includes wrong behavior, distorted thinking, an orientation to follow personal desires, and bad attitudes. Uh, he goes on, Much of the difficulty of counseling consists in bringing specific sin to awareness and breaking its hold. Uh, the problems in living that necessitate counseling 
are not matters of unmet psychological needs, uh, indwelling demons of sin, poor socialization, uh, inborn temperament, genetic predisposition, or anything else that removes attention from the responsible human being. Sin is the problem. Uh, pages 57 and 58. Okay, so the problems that necessitate counseling, that is symptoms of clinical significance, uh, are not um, ideologically or causatively related to uh, painful or traumatic experiences or uh, dysfunctional uh, family dynamics or social learning or um, you know biologic predisposition to disease. No, problems like generalized anxiety disorder or bipolar one, um, major depressive disorder recurrent or schizophrenia, these are caused by bad attitudes. I mean, beyond the fact that this kind of like anti-intellectual superstition seems pretty grossly out of place in modern time, I want you to notice that Dr. Pollison's specific list of sins is conspicuously unspecific. What what behaviors, you know, for instance, does he um, identify as psychopathogenic? Well, you know, wrong ones, you know, or what desires are related to the onset of disease? Personal ones, you know, or what attitudes are, are clinically indicated in the presentation of symptoms? Well, bad attitudes. I mean, let me ask you a question. Like, what exactly is a bad attitude? I mean, how does one objectively qualify and quantify a bad attitude. How many times does an individual have to exhibit a bad attitude before it causes the onset of illness? Or how, how severe or long-lasting uh, does it need to be in order to count as a bad attitude? Like, do other people need to notice the bad attitude? Or, you know, what, what, what does it mean if they don't? Is it like waking up on the wrong side of the bed or, or being in a bad mood? Or is it like a momentary feeling of frustration that maybe is better described as a knee-jerk reaction to an unexpected situation? Like, what's a bad attitude? Because if it's, if it's said to cause or, or itself to be one of the problems in living that necessitate counseling, it only makes good sense to define its parameters with thoughtful and precise language. But notice, Dr. Paulison doesn't do that. So what is a bad attitude? Well, let me ask you another question. Where specifically does the Bible call a bad attitude a sin and explicitly connect the sin of a bad attitude with the onset of a psychological illness? Or where does the Bible equate orientation to, to personal desires with the commission of evil? As I say, I, I, mean, I, I, like, I like reading and critical thinking. I like orthodox theology. Uh, I certainly like a, a glass of whiskey and my wife naked. I mean, these are personal desires, but I hardly see them as like inherently sinful or psychopathogenic. Maybe you say, well, we all know what, what, what Paulison means. We intuitively get his point. You're just being needlessly difficult. Well, perhaps you do intuitively grasp his meaning. You know, perhaps you're correct in your intuition. But remember, it's biblical counseling theory that's rejecting psychodynamic and, and social learning and, and biological theories of psychopathology. These are all very well-documented and, and defined explanations of symptom etiology. It's biblical counseling theory that is inculpating the whole of the psychological community. I, I think you're hard-pressed to demonstrate that I'm being difficult. 
I'm just asking questions as to the specific meanings of otherwise operative language. The, the psychohomardiological theory of symptomediology, it stretches back many centuries of time. I mean, it, it certainly didn't start or originate with Jay Adams or the biblical counseling movement. I mean, in fact, that his, his suffering uh, was you know, a direct result of his mistakes or sins was the counsel of Job's friends, you'll recall. Ironically, it was the Bible that identified this perspective as wrongheaded. This is from Job 32, verse 3. But this way of thinking has presented and, and represented itself across the centuries of church history, from the days of Pope Gregory I, the Great, uh, in the 4th century, uh, to those of Pope Innocent III in the 13th century, to those of the Puritans in the 18th century. I mean, it was merely popularized and promulgated again by the biblical counseling movement in the 20th century. But think about that. The, the theory is literally as old as the book of Job. But the notion that specific sins replicably and universally cause sickness has never been empirically demonstrated, not any more than the systematic reduction of symptom severity has ever been shown to bring about Christian faith. In other words, a positive correlation between faith or repentance and therapeutic progress has never been objectively confirmed, regardless of the number of times the claim has been made. The paper plate theory of biblical counseling calls the, the world's philosophy, or so-called secular psychology, deceptive, saying, as does Steve Byers in Counseling the Hard Cases, edited by uh, Scott and Lambert, 2012, that only one approach can claim the authority, thus says the Lord, page 83. And this is a common tactic for the biblical counseling movement, to take aim at, at everybody that's not them, every theory that's not biblical counseling theory. The question is, what specifically is biblical counseling theory? What, that, that sin of bad attitudes causes some random form of psychopathology? Or if you're presenting with some or another clinically significant symptom set, uh, then like breaking the hold of one of your life's sins will make it better. I mean, the problem is that you know there's there's neither data in science nor in scripture that directly and meaningfully supports biblical counseling theory. But evidence is clearly identified in both scripture and in science that opposes it. The substance of these facts taken together form an, an insurmountable problem for the biblical counseling movement. In the next episode, we'll look at the, the psychological theories and the scientific evidence that actually opposes biblical counseling theory, and eventually consider the extent to which the biblical counseling movement incorporates evidence-based psychotherapeutic protocols for the purpose of its own therapeutic efficacy. I hope you'll check it out, but until next time, Thanks for listening to The Biblical Beef.